Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're very excited to have a guest with us. We are hosting Al Malding, uh, who is also a super fan of The Wire. Hi, guys. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Al. Well, I am a, uh, I'm a father of three. I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I end up watching a lot of shows. Uh, and The Wire seems to be the main one. So That's great. And so when did you get into The Wire and kind of what kept you interested in the show? Well, I, I think it was about, the, about halfway through the first season, I was going to school in Florida with a guy that grew up outside of Baltimore. And he, he told me about the show and got me to sit down and watch an episode with him. And I've been nonstop into it ever since. I, I think I've probably watched it front to back six times. Um, it's just something about the characters. I can't get away from it. That's amazing. And so the, his perspective as a person from Baltimore, was he, he was a fan of the show? He felt like it represented Baltimore? Uh, well, he was actually from outside of the city. He was, uh, if, oh. if you remember back in season one, when Wallace goes out to the county, he's from that yeah. area. So it was, uh, you know, from what he told me, it seemed like it was pretty, pretty straightforward with uh, how he saw life in Baltimore. Um, okay, well, so we're back uh, on our season, or sorry, our episode five series, and uh, we're now going to today talk about season three, episode five. Yes, and so I'll give a little bit of a summary of kind of what's happening in this episode. So this one's called Straight and True, and just a bit of a plot overview. Johnny, uh, it opens with Johnny not wanting to be a snitch. And Bubbles saying, you know, yes, we can snitch when it comes to needing money. Bunk is charged with finding Dozerman's service weapon. Cuddy starts working as a soldier again. Avon gets out of jail and has a bit of a welcome home party and a reception at the club. McNulty, uh, this is the first time we meet Teresa D'Agostino. And then finally, the Western District crew uh, has to convince the middle management of the corners that they need to get the hoppers out into Hamsterdam. So that's kind of a brief uh, summary of what's happening in the episode plot-wise. Yes. So as as usual with some of the other uh, seasons that we've talked about, this is where the fifth episode is where things really start to kick into high gear. So Al, what was your favorite part of this episode or what really stands out to you about this episode? Oh man, there's a lot that stood out in this episode to me. I really do enjoy the the first scene with Bubbles and Johnny. Um, I feel like their conversation uh, really gives a lot of insight into what's coming with not even just this season, but the rest of the show. Um, the way you see Bubbles kind of fighting with the idea of doing what he considers to be something immoral versus something he sees as being a job. Yeah, there's something of, um, this is kind of a rift beginning between the two of them. And uh, I think that that only continues to fracture worse and worse this idea of kind of street code and what it means. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, well, so Kel, do you want to go over some of the themes um, that we've, identified to talk about in the show in this sure episode. so kind of the first I guess invitation into how to think about the episode and and uh and look at what's happening is the title itself and so the title is straight and true 
which is actually not as common a phrase as one might think. The more well-known phrase would be straight and narrow Mm -hmm. as opposed to straight and true. Sometimes you might hear something like um, the idea of an arrow straight and true, but I think what's happening there is it's a bit of a play on straight and narrow and a bit of a, a shift in the traditional phrase, which makes sense because we hear this idea of Amsterdam, which is kind of a, a shift of the idea of Amsterdam. So it's a bit of a play on words. And I think the idea of the straight and narrow or the straight and true invites us to think about uh, that famous verse from Matthew 7 in the Bible, enter ye at the straight gate. Mm-hmm. And so, Bill, do you want to read out that full passage? Yes, for sure. So the full passage reads, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way, that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in threat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Right, and so I think the idea of the straight gate or the narrow gate versus the wide gate kind of comes up a lot in this episode when people are faced with the choice of doing what's right versus doing what's easy. And the opening scene, as as Al said, kind of sets that up when Johnny wants to do the easy thing, which is take the money, which would be right there in front of them messing with the citizen. Right. Okay, great. Um, well, one of the other, um, things, it's funny that you opened with the biblical passage there because there's actually a fair amount of biblical imagery in this episode. Um, so I'm thinking of, you know, for example, when Cuddy goes to meet with the deacon and they sort of show that shot of the church steeple. And then a few minutes later, they show um, Bodhi going to meet with Stringer to talk about Amsterdam. And the, the shot that opens that scene, it's on the port. They sort of shoot, I don't know if it's a grain pier because I've never been on a port, but there's a antique sort of, I don't know, port tool or whatever that's shot with the same <laughs> as, the, as the church. And so there's sort of an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. Bailey, it's funny that you say that because we literally <laughs> were there. <laughs> we went... We were in Inner Harbor. <laughs> right. But I don't know what a grain pier is, I guess. I don't know if no, I would know the I. difference between a grain <laughs> pier either. So don't don't feel bad. <laughs> no. But so, Al, you had some, some thoughts on this as well, of the idea of kind of the narrow way versus the broad way as kind of aligning with good and evil. And so... Tell us a little bit about how you say see that playing out, either with uh, Bubbles and Johnny or you know, some of with, the other especially with Bubbles. I see um, he's one of my favorite characters in this show. He and I kind of feel like he's almost the main character. But like to see the some of the things that he said to Johnny, um, like in that first scene, he starts by saying there ain't no rules for dope fiends, and you know he kind of classifies themselves as dope fiends in that sense. And you see it as they come, like they go through the, let's see, um, the ladder scheme or whatever you would like to call it. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and you see the looks on his face yes. as he just, there's just a disdain for himself. 
and a disdain for the actions that they are doing to get money. And then you see him like just a little while later, whenever he's in the car with Kima and he's giving the description of Marlo's muscle and he gives him uh, Chris Bartlow's name is what she thinks she hears. And he, you know, goes on to correct her and goes, no, it's part like in the, in the person's hair. And then whenever he says low, he says low bottom dope fiend, which she even had that part of the name right. So you see the mm-hmm. self-reflection in himself at that point. Like he, you see that he's taking what he saw earlier and then what he's feeling at that point and he's seeing it in himself as a low bottom dope fiend. That's a great catch. I didn't ever pick up on that before, but you're totally right that his way of kind of identifying the world around him is his means also of describing people. Yeah, and that was the part of the name that she had gotten correct. So he didn't even need to remind her of that it's like it was stuck in his head and he was thinking about what had happened throughout the day and then you see him saving the majority of the money that she gives just i think that was something that came through his self-reflection and you kind of see him start making the change and becoming uh the bubbles that we see later on in this season and in seasons to come yeah Yeah, it's kind of the beginning of that entrepreneurial spirit that we see later and the fact it's actually I find it very hard to watch when he's in the back of the car trying to give up all his information to Kima and she's like oh that's five dollars if I can get a fingerprint that's ten dollars if I can make a photo ID and you can see how how in pain he is but then at the end of that to be able to say okay bank you know half of that money for me um I think shows kind of that ability to walk through the straight gate or the narrow path as we set up. And it comes back at the end of the episode when, um, I don't remember the two fellows' names, but they're the ones who are going around with Cuddy the whole episode. Mm-hmm. Bailey, do you know their names? No, but I'm I don't think of them as... I don't think their names... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Al. Oh, no, I don't think their names are ever addressed in the series. Maybe um... not. Maybe not, but um, they're the ones who are getting high and then... Avon says, like, where's the fucking discipline? And mm-hmm. I think that that kind of brings brings home the point that we've seen set up from the start, which is what is that discipline to walk the narrow path? And it's it's Bubbles who's able to do it from the outset when he says, bank that money for me. Yes. Well, and I also think of Bubbles as banking the money still as that also reflection, like you were saying, Kel, of the the easy way versus the right way. So, you know, he put all this work into getting that money and Kima definitely drives a hard bargain. Um, but then he, like, instead of just taking all the money, he gets $40. He gives her back 20 and says, okay, bank it, which is, you know, the easy thing would have been to just take the money. But he plays it hard, as Kima said in the season one, and, uh, and decides to bank the money. Yeah. Well, and we see that kind of pay off when he sets up the Bubbles Depot um, because it's the first sort of mention of it when he says, oh, the the folks only wear the white shirts a couple of times. And so he does have a vision, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you see, and I, I love the fact that they use the word bank at that point um, because it also shows that he's working towards the hustle. He, he has like a goal in mind with that money. 
And then later on in the show, whenever they're talking about how Stringer has kind of moved out of the game, they're calling him the bank. And so it's kind of like foreshadowing, saying Bubs has got to hustle and he's going to try to work his way up to be a Stringer. You know? Yes. But, That's such a good insight. I also had never thought of that before. Yes, you're absolutely right, Al. So there's that scene is great when you can just feel the disappointment from McNulty when he's like, oh, Stringer's become the bank because he's kind of lost the the target that he's been chasing this whole time. And one of the lines just shortly after that plays back into the title of the episode as well when Freeman says the money gets washed through enough straight investments that they can't connect Stringer to a package. And mm -hmm. so that um, there's like all these kind of various interpretations of the word straight and what that means, whether it's um, legitimate or moral or some other way of thinking about what it means to walk the straight path. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what do we, there, okay, so there's a couple other characters that face similar sort of moral dilemmas, and uh, Al, you specifically drew attention to Carchetti and Gray when it comes to discussing the state's witness. So what do you see happening there between the two of them? Well, at that point in time, you, you know, Carchetti, who you see that he's trying to do some good. He's trying to come up with some way, and I feel like it's almost not political at that point, where he's trying to say, we have to take care of our witnesses. It's time for us to work together. He's almost trying to bring everybody in on a common goal, kind of the same way Stringer is with the New Day co-op. And mm -hmm. you, so it's, it's interesting to see how he, he's going to get some pushback from Gray at the beginning. But then it completely flips. And at the end of the episode, when Gray is really pushing, when they're at the uh, city council meeting, and Carcetti has to tell him to lay off. And he's like, well, what got into you? And he says, well, you did. And mm -hmm. so you, you, you kind of see uh, the juxtaposition of both the city council members and the politicians trying to do the same thing that the, that the gangsters are doing. And I, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting to see how Carcetti's really trying to get on that straight and narrow and find what that path is. And there's even pushback from it from within the people who are supposed to be helping him in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely like a look exchanged in the mayor's office when he has that first meeting. Um, with Royce to say like, look, I could have gone in the media with this, but I didn't. I just want something actually done. And then when he leaves, Royce and his um, assistant sort of exchange this look like, you know, like this guy. You know? Yeah. Well, and I think that that kind of brings up the point of, I don't know when we decide if we trust Carcetti, but it kind of feels like the rug is always pulled out from under us of whether we think he's genuine or not. Mm -hmm. When he's in the, I guess it's the campaign office or the councilman headquarters when he's uh, talking to Gray about this and he says, let's do something, fuck the politics. 
it's kind of, I don't know about how the two of you feel, but I find it hard to believe him. And then when he tells on the notepad, tells Gray to lay off, it kind of reaffirms the idea that Carcetti doesn't actually care about this for the, the sake of what it means. He really has this serious personal motive and he's playing everybody. Hmm. Well, what do you yeah, think? I mean, do you believe him when he's talking about, oh, it's so important to uh, to really care about this when he's talking to Gray in the, in the you office? You know, with the way you just put it, I kind of feel like I'm one of the people that he played. <laughs> because I did. I really, like, thinking about that scene, I I feel like it was genuine. But when you put it that way, I, I definitely see it being able to be read either way. I think it's just, it's hard to know at any point if he's being genuine. And I, I mean, I like her, Kitty. It's not a slight against him. If anything, it's a credit to him that he's able to manipulate people's levels of trust. But kind of brings me back to that moment when he's at the campaign party and, and sleeps with, what's her name? And he's looking at himself in the mirror. And I think that that's a really revealing moment of even when he might be speaking about something passionately or doing something passionately, there's, there is something going on in the back of his mind that is self-serving. That devil on his shoulder. Mm. And it seems like he gets the best of it. (laughs) Well, and actually, since we're on the topic of looking at oneself in the mirror, um, that's definitely something that David Simon uses throughout the series to draw attention to these critical moments. And we've talked about that in another episode, but I did notice in this episode that happens when Cuddy um, has done drugs and he brings in the clean pee and he's in that in the urine test office and he looks at himself in the mirror before he, he puts the daycare pee into the thing, into the cup. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that's a great moment. Her, um, sorry, Cuddy is also someone who faces this uh, choice throughout the episode of doing what's right versus doing what's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Al, do you want to talk a little bit about that or expand on your ideas? Yeah, well, with with Cuddy, I've I find his character to be interesting. He's a, you, you know, he um, you see him going by Cuddy, and you see that persona of who he is, and he's real tough and he's gritty, and I I don't feel like. Or I feel like the the realization that he had in the mirror was something that came from him saying his legal name. You know, whenever he put his thumb on the on the machine and she said, what's your name? He said, Dennis Wise. And I feel like that was kind of his come down to reminding him of who he was when he was in prison and he had to go by his real name. And. You, then you see that reflection in the mirror and you see the look in his eyes where he's like, I'm doing the same thing. Like, I'm going to end up um, in the same place. And interesting. You know, so I, I really love that. Uh, scene. I think it's a great point. And when he's meeting with the deacon at the church and the deacon says, Oh, Dennis wise. And he says, everyone calls me Cuddy. And he says, okay, Cuddy then it's at the end of that conversation. When he says, this didn't play like I thought it was going to play because he kind of wants to make this easy choice and picking up on your point, the fact that he kind of right. in a way disavowed his legal name and instead said, Oh no, it's Cuddy 
fits with what he did at the end of the scene when he says, I'm, I don't really want to put the work in. Right. It was, he was expecting it to be right. handed to him like things were on the street. And whenever he realized that it was going to be work and be trying like it was when he was in prison, right. he just wanted to get away from it. Yeah, I completely see that. And it's interesting because it's not this episode, but one of the other episodes where he does get that package just given to him as a welcome home gift. Uh, and then Fruit plays him. And, That's a uh, him You know, and it's just another way where he kind of, I think Cuddy in a lot of ways through this episode especially is wrestling with this old Cuddy versus new Cuddy and who who does that need to be in he has a similar moment as Bubbles does after the the ladder caper when he's watching those two guys which are like Tweedledee and Tweedledum or whatever um, <laughs> when he's watching them beat up the the <laughs> dealer that works for them that's been skimming off the top and giving money to his girlfriend and buying her all that stuff um, when when they're beating him up, Cuddy mm-hmm. stops them and says he's not going to be able to make right what he owes um, if he can't work. Like, if you hurt him so badly, he can't work. And they just, they pause for a second and then they resume what they were doing. And Cuddy, as Bubbles does, walks away in the same kind of way in disgust and with a bit of, like, I guess, remorse or resignation or, um, yeah, just, you know, walks away like, is this? Is this what I want now? I think in a way that harkens back to season yeah. one uh, when it's um, Johnny who gets caught giving the Monopoly money or whatever. Oh, yeah. And they want to beat him up so badly. And D'Angelo is kind of just looking on in resignation. He doesn't really condone it, but it's happening in front of him. I think that that moment with Cuddy kind of echoes that feeling of not wanting to be weak, but also not really on board with what's happening right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a little bit of disdain for what's going on, but they feel like it's a part of the business. So that's acceptable. But once it goes beyond the business, they just want to mm-hmm. be away from it. And I feel like that's what was going on with Cuddy in that scene. Like it was fine to beat him up because they got to prove a point. But as soon as it started going too far, it wasn't about business anymore. And I, I see I see him seeing a difference in what it was when he was out the first time and now what it is when he's back and mm-hmm. that causing his change. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah. it's a good point to make that the game somewhat changed over the time of his incarceration. And I do think that the show hints at that especially when the deacon says, oh, do you have any work experience? And he says, I worked in a warehouse in 1986. I think that that's meant to reinforce that Mm -hmm. things are not as they were when Cuddy was free in the first place and and he's kind of grappling with this level of change. Right. Well, and I think Cut, is it even, I think it is Cuddy who even says at one point, the game done changed. Yeah, that sounds like what Cuddy would say. Well, and um he he does actually shock us i i feel shocked anyway when he clocks what's her name across the face on the sidewalk and mm-hmm. says we're going to talk mm-hmm. and that yeah that was definitely yeah, an oh shit moment like, um, <laughs> it was like a he 
he was kind of putting on this this front of being tough guy or whatever, but it is shocking even to the people that he's with. You can see on their faces that they're like, whoa, like we didn't see that coming. Yeah. It's interesting because um, in the book by Jonathan Abrams, uh, All the Pieces Matter, he talks about how some of the real detectives that this story is based on were very upset with what the show did with the character Cuddy because the real Cuddy that they based this on was like actually like a ruthless gangster who hurt and maimed and killed like lots of people. So in the character to kind of evolve him into this kind community spirited kind of fellow, apparently there was quite a bit of upset and pushback from the cops on the show. Well, that's interesting because, Hmm. I mean, if there was a ruthless character, I mean, that's basically Chris Partlow. And I don't feel like the names necessarily matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. But I do know that um, Landsman, for instance, when they cast, uh, I don't know the actor's name, but cast the actor who plays Landsman, who's kind of physically the opposite of the real Landsman, that was a big joke to everybody. So maybe there's kind of um, some uh, intention there with the liberties that they take. Yeah, totally. Okay. And so I'll, all right. So what do you think about Omar? This is kind of the last uh, plot section that we haven't really talked about is, is Omar and how he's fitting into this idea of good and evil or moral versus immoral and the choices that the characters make. Yeah, I feel like this episode itself is kind of difficult to uh, to to say anything. Like, if it was, I, I believe it's episode six in season three where you have Bonk and Omar having their real spirited mm-hmm. talk. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's kind of a that would be more of a easy choice whenever you see him fighting with the the battle of good and evil inside of himself. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of um, him trying to avoid it in this episode. Whenever you see him cleaning the guns and he's trying to tell Kimmy and the other guy just, hey, look, this is just part of it. We just got to let it go. Either get over it or get out. And I I, kind of see that as him not wanting to go through that in this episode. He's trying to avoid it altogether Mm -hmm. and just move on to the next job. Um, and then I see later on in the season when Bunk brings it up to him and really gives him his earful, and, you know, and you actually get to see the tear come off of Omar's face. You see that he understands that what he's doing is not right. Even if he tries to justify it to himself, whichever way he does, he understands that what he's doing is wrong. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to watch that in a way because Omar's the character that everybody wants to like because he's the anti-hero yeah. and you know it's so it's difficult to see him go through those transitional phases but uh yeah I think the the conversation with him and Kimmy and the other guy really set off in that direction of him trying to avoid uh coming to a conclusion in inside of himself well, and you also see him exerting some leadership when they start sparring the other two. And he says, did you hear me? Like, knock it off. Um, but one thing that I thought was kind of 
interesting and hard for me to figure out is that this opening scene with Johnny and Bubbles and Johnny says there needs to be rules otherwise things get fucked up and he says um you know it's okay to snitch if you're locked up but it's not okay to snitch if you're just looking for money and he kind of, Johnny kind of sets out this moral code it's very reminiscent of the moral code that Omar kind of sets up in his own way of never on no Sunday and all of these other things but I think we we sympathize with Omar but in the opening scene we don't sympathize with Johnny and I'm trying to figure out why that is and what the difference is when they're laying out these versions of street morale hmm. yeah yeah it's true like, and I don't know what the answer is it's, just, it's kind of interesting that there are in various ways, multiple characters that are setting up their own versions of what is right and what is the correct choice to make morally on the street. And some of them I think we feel sympathy for and some of them we don't. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's because uh, nobody's really trying to help Omar. Like, you know what I mean? Nobody's trying to get him on the straight and narrow. Um, Yeah. And, and you see that people try to help Johnny throughout. You know, Bubs tries to teach him about the streets in season one, and then he's in the hospital and he has the ability to get clean if he wanted to, and he just doesn't. You know, so maybe it's because he's not accepting the help that he's being given, and Omar's just not being given any help. So it's easier to kind of see why he. Uh, you know, has his code that he sticks to and it kind of makes more sense. Yeah, that's a good interpretation. I like that. Yeah, I think that's similar to what I was going to say too in that, um, yeah, with Bubbles, it's like he's just, or sorry, with Johnny, he's juxtaposed with Bubbles. So you really, compared to Bubbles, they're this sort of dichotomy between good and evil like I think that happens a lot in this episode where the where two characters are set up sort of against one another um Mm -hmm. and so I think that yes like you said Al you know Bubbles is always trying to help Johnny uh trying to reach out trying to show the way um and when he wants to get clean Johnny's not supportive of that so in a way Johnny's kind of set up to be a bad guy whereas Omar um is sort of all of those things in one character. So maybe we're, I don't know, we're more likely to cheer for Omar. Um, I'll speak a little bit more to that, if I may. The literary device that you're talking about where two characters are kind of set up in in opposition to one another is called a foil. Oh, okay. I think we see uh, multiple sets of foils over the course of this series, of course, um, in... In a couple of ways, McNulty has the foil of Stringer Bell. Um, We see that uh, Frank Sabatka has the foil of the Greek might be one way of looking at it. Anyway, they kind of, they shift and move. But one character who I don't think we ever get a foil for is Omar. And it's because all along he's set up as this independent. And uh, so maybe that's, kind of one way of thinking about that is 
is we don't have anyone that he's in opposition to where we would feel sympathy for the other as we do with the way that we kind of like Bubbles and what he's all about, maybe a bit more than Johnny, who those two are foils as well. Yes. That's really interesting. I didn't know there was a literary device there, but it's definitely used a lot in the show. Yes, it is. And the I think what's what's cool, and we've talked about this before, is kind of the mirroring and the way that things reflect um, almost in a symmetrical way is that is the um, logic behind a foil. And so McNulty and Stringer Bell, as I said, but then in, once we get into season three, and especially late season three, we see that shift over to where it would be Avon and Stringer are foils for one another because they have completely opposite views of um, the way to approach the game. I think that actually starts in this episode as well. Or like it really like starts to boil over. You see it in the uh, in the club scene at Avon's welcome home party when Avon Avon yes. looks over and sees Stringer talking to all the guys and he kind of gets this look on his face. And then next thing you know is he's making that uh, the line about discipline whenever the two guys are getting Tweedledee and Tweedledum are getting kicked out of the club. And I feel like that discipline line is him finally getting to the point where he's mad at Stringer. Like he's kind of like somewhat directing right, it at Stringer, like right? This that was line. your responsibility. And these guys are undisciplined and we're out here looking like this. And this was on you. And Yeah. And it's kind of like Stringer's off at the copy shop, not really taking care or, you know, disciplining the the folks within the organization and so al i completely agree with you i think it's a it's an a moment of um irritation which he says where's the discipline he's talking about tweedledee and tweedledum but in a way he's kind of talking yeah. about stringer mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, and the the moment where uh because this new day co-op has been running all along while avon was locked up and then you're right to point out that all of a sudden Stringer's kind of holding court at the club with all these uh all these people from kind of competing drug organizations and it makes Avon uncomfortable and you're right you see it on his mm -hmm. face at that moment and and you and then just like, oh no and I was going to say go you, you kind of see it happen a couple of more times as the night goes on every time that Avon tries to talk to that one lady. Uh, Stringer comes up and intercedes and everything. Yeah. And you see the frustration grow. And then even after he gives him the big loft and he's telling him that it's legal and everything, he's like, hey, look, I appreciate everything, but you're still not paying attention to what I'm saying I'm needing right now. And then mm -hmm. you see, and then as he leaves... And he, he actually follows through for Avon. You see that, okay, maybe he is paying attention. Like that little bit of comfort come over Avon's face right at the end. But you still see so much building towards what's coming in the, in the next few episodes. And I think that um, giving of the, the loft and kind of showing Avon around, 
there the moment when he says, and it's in your name, this piece piece of paper says so is a moment that it kind of represents a shift because all along season one and season two, we've heard that Avon's name is never going to be on anything. Mm-hmm. And so Stringer did that without really consulting with Avon. And, you know, he was in charge of the operations and he went ahead and did this. And theoretically, Avon's name is clean, but it represents a deviation from the normal right. way of doing things. And the the scene in the loft, I think, sets us up really, really nicely for what we see. Maybe it's five or six episodes later, which is the yes. absolute famous balcony scene. Yeah. Absolutely. So kind of, um, I think this, you're right. It's setting up this fracture that's starting to happen. All right. Well, is there anything else? Hmm. I, I took a bunch of notes while I was watching it the other day. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, oh, one line that I did notice that I thought was really cool because of the talk of the rules, like you were saying earlier, where with Johnny and Bubbles, they were talking about the rules and everything like that. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but whenever uh, all of the hoppers get over to Amsterdam and they say they don't have any any customers. So the police go around and you see Herc snatch up Johnny from the corner. And yes. he said, you call me off. yeah, he's like, you didn't even let me cop. And then Herc's exact words to him was, oh, is that some kind of a rule? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you see another, another playback to that. Oh, are there rules to this thing? Or are we just out here doing whatever we want? And good point. Because there are these kind of subtle, um, reinforcements of the theme of playing by the rules yeah and that's something that david simon does a great job with at all of his shows and you know it's it's definitely evident in this one and uh similarly when um mcnulty's two two boys are at his place they're playing a video game and i can't remember which one it is sean or michael says oh he cheated he's cheating at the game and mcnulty says Sean, take it easy on your brother or something like that. But the the idea of having um, yet another moment of play that includes the choice to either play by the rules or not, I think, uh, goes with what you're saying. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and even just the whole creation of Hamsterdam is a total upending of the rules. Yeah, it is completely, and it's um, it's like the uh, the Comstat conversation where it's like, well, are you working eight to four and you're investigating the thefts of the cars afterwards, or are you working midnight shift and you're preventing the thefts? Hmm. Exactly. That. Is- Although we don't exactly sympathize with brawls. That's no, I don't think anybody does. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that was also an important scene because you see that's where uh, Rawls first states that we're not we're only worried about the analytics. We're only worried about the statistics. So what does the data show? I don't care if you actually catch more car thieves in the daytime. What does the data show? That's when you're supposed to be working. 
right. it's a reliance on this computer data instead of the actual knowledge of the people on the streets. And I mean, in that example, he kind of does have a point that it makes more sense to work midnight shift when thefts are happening as opposed to after the fact and then investigating. Yeah. Later. But, but I know we're, we, we don't <laughs> Okay. Well, um, I think this uh, is a great recap of season three, episode five. Yes, thank you so much all for joining us. It was really great to have your your voice in this discussion, and I, I hope we can Oh, I would that. love to. This is so much fun for me. I love this show, and it was great to be on here talking with you guys. I really appreciate you having me. Okay, well then, thanks so much. You can tweet us at Rewired Podcast, and you can tweet Al at Mr. Malding. We'll put that in our show notes. Yeah, and I'm always willing to talk about Paper? The Wire with anybody. It's it's open game. Let's have some fun. Yes, yes, great. And you can also email us podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Way down the hole.